Welcome back to Rural Roots Rising by the Rural Organizing Project. If this is your first time listening, Rural Roots Rising is a monthly radio show and podcast created by and for rural Oregonians who are creatively and courageously building stronger and more vibrant communities for a just democracy. Today's episode, Building an Ever-Wider Circle, is about telling stories, sharing skills, and expanding our collective understanding of history to create a more welcoming future for everyone who calls Oregon home. The adult kids who had lived here for 50 years were saying, why haven't I heard this story before? Why don't I know about Maxville? I didn't know there were black loggers. What is this about? It was just this anomaly. What we thought was an anomaly. My name is Emma Renee Derning, and I'm an organizer with the Rural Organizing Project. In this episode, you will hear from Gwen Trice with the Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center in Wallowa County, the northeast corner of Oregon. The center offers a view into the lives of not only Black loggers in Wallowa County, but also Native American, Greek, and Japanese loggers, and the overlapping but distinct discrimination that they faced. There are many places we could start telling the history of oppression in Oregon, like Christopher Columbus, Manifest Destiny, or the disregard of indigenous sovereignty. For this episode, though, Gwen starts us off in the 1850s, when Oregon became a state. Oregon joined the Union with exclusion laws already in place that excluded free African Americans from living, working, and owning land. And so they really had, Oregon had a strong sense of really wanting to be a white utopia. They voted against slavery, but they also didn't want free blacks living and working and being in the space. And um, Oregon had a huge Klan presence. And really, the Klan at that time was a, more of a social club in the, in the idea that there were so many members. Women belonged, kids, they had the youth. It was entrenched throughout all of Oregon. And um, LeGrand was no different growing up here. I mean, uh, Governor Pierce, he was... Um, there, I think there are pictures of him with Klansmen with their robes on, and they backed his, um, you know, being a governor. And you know, actually, the library here is named after him as well. And so I know that before I was born, there was a cross burned in our backyard, and the last cross burned in Lagrande in someone's yard, to my knowledge, was 1968. That was a part of it in the early 70s, just growing up in, in grade school, we weren't allowed to go to people's houses. A lot of people said, you, I can't, you know, my mommy says I can't play with you because you're uh, inward, you know, or you could, we could play with you out in the yard, or just really you're just not welcome to come over. That happened a lot, and so you just don't venture out too much from the family. Grandma lived down the street. I had a couple of friends in grade school. Really, it was always a, a big conversation between my mom or my mom and dad and their parents to make sure that, you know, the invitation was appreciated, but do you know what you're getting into or do you know, are you prepared for your friends to, you know, respond in a negative way? And so I was able to spend the night with 
Um, a couple of my friends, um, one of my teachers in grade school, I spent the night at her house, and she also had horses. And so, but it was always that conversation ahead of time. It was, um, it was just very. I mean, I have nothing to compare it to, because I hadn't lived anywhere else. But I always wanted to leave as soon as possible. <laughs> I would watch the, you know, the white lines in the sky and see the jets passing over and going, wonder what that would be like, you know, just living outside of the space and thinking that it's got to be better and it's got to be, you know, different. And truly it was. When I moved to the city, it was so different. And I was just my mouth was wide open the whole time. I, I mean, went to school, had my first black teacher. I couldn't stop staring at her. She was just, she amazed me, and I was, I just fell in love with her. And <laughs> started reaching out. I really didn't fit in, though, because my background is rural, and the way I speak is considered proper. And so when I would be around um, city African-American people, they'd be like, you talk like you're white. <laughs> you know, so it was, there was this, always this, how do, you, how do you remain who you are and find acceptance in spaces? Even though black exclusion laws were still written into the Oregon Constitution until 2001, many Oregonians have never heard this history. For Gwen, though, whose dad came to Oregon while the KKK-backed Governor Pierce was in office, these laws have impacted her family's ability to live and thrive in this state for generations. Because there weren't very many black kids at the, by the time I grew up, I, I did know that LeGrand had a fairly large black population, but once the young men got of age to get jobs, they couldn't get hired. And so that really pushed them into the city. And then once like Maxville and World War II was happening, they get to Portland, and Portland's not better. Portland still has the same issues that um, Rural did because it's the same state. Well, I had no idea. I thought the city would be different um, there. In Seattle, it was. I didn't have the same issues, but then when I went to Portland, I noted that there was. I used to call it. It's more conservative. But it's actually, there's a underlying tension that's there. And that's due to that whole idea of having exclusion laws and having people excluded. And there are many sundown towns across the rural landscape and across Oregon as well. And so there's a lot of things that impact people of color, whether, you know, whether they're traveling or um, wanting to find a safe place to eat. And a lot of people used to stop by my father's house when I was a little girl that were traveling through. And people, whether they were white or black, they would, um, they would say, well, go see Lucky Trice. Um, his name was Lafayette, but everybody called him Lucky. And he, he would let them know, you know, what, what way you headed. Well, you know, make sure to carry some gas through this area and, you know, go here and do eat at this place and this is a safe space here as well you can stay here or just get through this place 
as quickly as you can before dark. Shortly after high school, Gwen traveled to the Seattle area to work at Boeing. After 9-11, she lost her job and put her energy into acting and videography. She started searching for a project where she could use her experience teaching and working with adult learners in the aerospace industry, as well as her skills in storytelling and art. That's when she heard about a ghost town called Maxville. I um, began to do interviews with some of the elders in the community. Once I began to find out, I started hearing that, did you know your dad was a logger? And, and um, went up to an old reunion that was near the town of Maxville by the name of Promise. And that Promise reunion brought me um, in direct contact with our family's logging history that was generational. Gwen and her siblings had never heard the stories told at the reunion in Promise. The time she spent in Promise inspired her to document this nearly lost history and took her all the way to Texas to interview one of the last living African-American loggers who had worked in Maxville. What was also unique about this history was I came to it almost too late. So all of the primary people who lived in Maxville or who it was a part of their story, the people that I interviewed were in their mid and late 90s. And so truly I'm getting it at the end of their lives or their memories. And I decided I couldn't do the work from the city. It was really important to be in the same town where these people lived because there were no other Really, there were there's so few black people that live in Malawa County, and I'm the only descendant, African American descendant from Maxville, living in that space. And so it was really important to be there. And so that was at that point, I decided in around 2005 that you know this is time. I started doing presentations in Malawa and. Um, I started putting all of these things, these video interviews in the queue. So I really wasn't doing anything with them at that point. All I knew was I need to interview as many people as I possibly can before it's too late. After a while, I met with a woman in in Wallowa County who worked at Willow Resources at the time as the director. And she says, you know, Gwen, you ought to move here. We need you. And she introduced me to one of the producers for Oregon Public Broadcasting. And I took all my all the things that I'd gathered. There had been um, a couple of older women up at Promise that made me a little sort of scrapbook of of um, copied articles and pictures of people from the, the neighboring town of Maxville. And it was tied with bright orange yarn. And they just said, here's your story now. You're the keeper of the word. And I just took it and added to that, and it got bigger and more rich. And so I took all these documents and pictures and I laid them on the table at the offices of Oregon Public Broadcasting 
and I'm telling my story and I'm crying because I didn't know my dad then. He came to Wallowa County with his father in a boxcar um, from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And just, I was still sort of getting used to that idea that they came there so early that we actually had a toehold in this community. We had a place there. It just started to hit me really strong. And um, the people at OPB, it hit them strong too. They just, once I finished talking and telling my story, there was just dead silence at the table and tears standing in people's eyes. And they looked at each other and just said, you know, we need to do this story. We definitely need to go to Alawa County, talk with Gwen, walked through the woods with their cameras and interviewed other people I lined up. And then I took all my videos and I allowed them to choose whatever footage they wanted to help create the logger's daughter. And that's that's the part that I think that is so important is to it tells my journey in the beginning of coming to you know, coming to the knowledge, coming home, talking and making connections with the elders in the community. So it truly is uh, telling the American narrative with the inclusion of, of the multicultural voices that contributed. The movie Gwen refers to, The Logger's Daughter, came out in 2009. If you would like to watch it yourself or share it with your community, you can find the link at ruralrootsrising.org. Since its release, Gwen has used The Logger's Daughter as a conversation starter in rooms across Oregon to discuss race, racism, and parts of our state's history that you can't find in school textbooks. We brought it to the town of Balawa and we showed it the first time and over 130 people showed up with standing room only with people just in tears. They just, the elders were sitting up front and their, their um, adult kids were wheeling them in and, and their parents are just crying. And it was so, it was such a phenomenal Peace, because the adult kids who had lived here for 50 years were saying, why haven't I heard this story before? Why don't I know about Maxville? I didn't know there were black loggers. What is this about? It was just this anomaly. What we thought was an anomaly. But as you dig deeper into the, the migration history of logging, that there were black loggers in the South that they were actually the most hired out of any industry in the South for black people was the, the timber industry. The fact that I didn't grow up knowing that about him and that he's gone now and that I came home, it was a story that brought me home and it brought me to a place where I wanted everyone's input. This is an American narrative. Finding that she wasn't the only person in her generation who grew up not knowing this history, Gwen took her role seriously as keeper of the word. With community support, she opened the Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center in the former Forest Service building on Main Street in Joseph, Oregon. The Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center 
is now a space where people are able to grapple with the complex history of Northeastern Oregon, and, in many ways, the history of the entire state. So there's the old logging practices, and there's what we do today, and there's still multicultural groups of people working in the industry, and there's still issues that are inside of that. So there'll be more work contributed by our young people in our community, and right now we're working on connecting with the tribes and creating um, course curriculum, talking about how the tribes and their traditional use of timber. And then they've got a nutrition side that we don't, that we don't eat any parts of the pine. But they, you know, pull off the black moss and they got dig pits and they have this process of cleaning it, baking it into bricks. And then we are also in the process of purchasing now the old Maxville town site. And so with that, we are definitely into preserving the structure. We took the structure out of the Maxwell town site that was the only log structure, and it was the structure used to run the business. But the idea of working together with this organization to create this vibrant, culturally relevant um, learning curriculum is powerful. We're excited about where that will take us and how it will connect us to more students of color who might. We want to just inspire people that you, if you are interested, if you have something about your heart that pulls you, there's places for you in these spaces, in these beautiful outdoor spaces. So we want to connect people to a sense of place. And archaeology is a great way to discover and to get your hands in that work. And then part of the timber management that we'll have there will be for forestry education. And so the idea is not just to serve our community, but to serve brown and black youth to have a safe space to learn more about people that look like them and how they thrived in spaces and in times when it was extremely difficult. The Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center wouldn't have been possible without the incredible support of community members that reached out to Gwen to offer their skills and resources. Whether it's carpentry, document preservation, nonprofit law, or a few extra dollars, people give what they can because they believe in the vision of sharing often overlooked experiences to make people feel like they too have a place in Willowa County. And it's super healing as well. It's, and it's just that whole sigh of relief. Now, note that I don't go out of my house as much as I used to because, it, you know, you're always on for the most part. You go to, to Safeway, walk by the prescription counter. Well, there's all the elders right there. Like, hey, I got a story for you. And just this idea of listening to one another and hearing another perspective of this story and and hearing from the, uh, my Native American brothers and sisters who talk about their experience in the logging camp and seeing Japanese loggers there and the government people coming to take the Japanese away and that the camp stood for them and said these are our you know these are our friends they're not our enemies you you, sh- you have no right to take these people from us and so it's this idea that we're building these 
little micro communities inside of our communities and we're we're lifting each other up and we're I find that we're there's a lot of us that are struggling with the world around us that so many things are politicized or they're they're um, polarizing for for places to talk and there seems not to be safe places to talk about. So when you can find places like Maxville where we really want to talk about all of us and talk about community and connection and healing and all of that, that's a natural attractive to people who have been looking for something to connect to and to believe in. And people respond and they do often say, I'm a retired um, librarian, how can I help? I'm a retired um, contractor. When you get ready to put that building up, call me. I want to help work on it. An, an engineer in Legrand, he says, I've known you since you were 17. You don't remember me, but I've been watching your work. And we're so proud of you. And when you get ready to get that building up, um, I'll do your engineering for free. We've got this network. Our, all of our grantors they've become part of our families because they get the work, they get the healing, the, the work that we do. They've seen us in action. They've seen us in pain. They've seen us in deep pain over this work of some of the things that come out of people's mouths, and they, they're surprised, and they're like, now we kind of have a better sense of what you really are experiencing in your world, and we need to be responsible responsive to that and support you instead of you know giving it to everyone around you because you are impacting not just your community but you're changing the history of Oregon. As Gwen says, the story of Maxville is truly an American narrative. By making this history available for tourists and locals alike, the Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center is expanding the idea of who belongs in Wallowa County and in Oregon. Rooted in her drive to make young people of color feel more fully at home than she did growing up, Gwen is building partnerships with the schools and creating curricula to engage and inspire students. I think they're really coming of age in so many different ways because of... um, folks are really trying to understand what identity is and and it's not just through out the color of our skin but it's through our um how we see ourselves how do you know how do i relate am i he she they um you know are yeah, lgbtq people are searching and and really defining themselves in in these um positive ways and i think that it creates space for more tolerance of each other. You know, like when you have a class and you have young people, they got to go home to their families. And so a lot of times that's where we get those biases and those, those opinions about other people that we don't know anything about. You're changing, you know, how, it, it, how we connect in the schools. Creating this curriculum to me is going to be so amazing. I get to give back what I did not get. That's, that's truly amazing. And that's healing to me is I don't get set aside from my fellows in first grade by the, a teacher that doesn't know, that's telling me that you can only be a nurse, so don't strive to be a doctor or anything more. 
And they were taught to tell kids of color that you were only going to be able to get a job like this, so don't try harder. So that, I get the gift all the time from people of just their willingness to step into the circle and say, like, where do I fit in? This, this is what I do. And I love it. I love being a leadership for that, of really being able to tie their strengths to the work. By not only inviting people into the physical space of Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center, but also bringing the lessons from that space out to people in schools, festivals, and museums across the state, Gwen's work is the epitome of building stronger and more vibrant community. She is supporting a well-informed and educated public, which is a cornerstone of a strong democracy. And this goes beyond her work around Maxville specifically. In collaboration with the Northeast Oregon Economic Development District, Gwen also organizes workshops and conversations on racism, white privilege, and how our communities can become more welcoming. A lot of times folks take it very light and they're laughing and you have to remind people that, you know, this work is difficult work. And it's not a work where you pat yourself on the back because you did it. You sh- you're showing up to show that you have a capacity for understanding somebody outside of your group and outside of things that you are surrounded by. And it's super important that you acknowledge that in a respectful way. And so we're really learning how to create those communication tools, how to figure out what being an ally is as a white person to a person of color. What are the actions that you would take? What kind of practices should we be doing? And those things are difficult, like I say, but they're, we keep showing up, we keep filling those spaces because people really do want to learn and they want to incorporate it into their small businesses. And so that's another thing that's really hopeful to me is when I first came back, I didn't see it near as much or it wasn't happening at all. And there's been a great shift in that work amongst the communities around. So we're excited about seeing the long-term changes. been listening to Building an Ever Wider Circle, the fifth episode of Rural Roots Rising by the Rural Organizing Project. This monthly radio show and podcast is created by and for rural Oregonians who are creatively and courageously building stronger and more vibrant communities for a just democracy. Do you have comments, questions, or reactions to what you just heard? Tell us what you think at info at ruralrootsrising.org. Want to learn more about Oregon's founding as a white utopia and how that legacy still plays out in our communities today? Visit ruralrootsrising.org for more information about Oregon's racially exclusionary laws, the Maxville Heritage Interpretive Center, the Logger's Daughter, and traveling exhibits about Maxville. If you are part of a rural museum, historical society, or other cultural institution in Oregon, we have shared resources for how rural institutions can advance racial and social equity at ruralrootsrising.org. We featured music from The Road Sodas, Jean Burnett, and Please Responder. Do you want to help us share powerful rural organizing? 
from across Oregon? Send us your organizing stories. Ask your local radio station to play this podcast and donate to sustain this project at ruralrootsrising.org. Rural Roots Rising is created by the Rural Organizing Project, a network of over 65 autonomous member groups who are committed to advancing human dignity and democracy across rural Oregon. To learn more about the Rural Organizing Project, go to rop.org. If you liked what you heard today, you can find more episodes at ruralrootsrising.org. Please follow Rural Roots Rising on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening!